You're listening to the Irish Times. It's Wednesday, November the 9th, and you're very welcome to a special podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and just to say before we start that we'll be pushing this podcast out both through our worldview and our Inside Politics stream. The last few hours have seen one of the most extraordinary, and I think it's fair to say shocking events, certainly in my living memory. In a little over two months' time, Donald Trump will be inaugurated as the 45th President of the United States. In a little while, I'll be talking to Ruan McCormack, who's at the Trump rally in Manhattan at the Hilton Hotel. But first, I'm joined on the line from New York at the Javits Centre, where the Clinton rally was due to take place, by our Washington correspondent, Simon Carswell. Simon Carswell, what the hell happened? Uh, Very simple. He got voters who tend not to vote in the numbers that they do. Um, He got out white, working-class voters in such huge numbers. Uh, They liked his message. They liked his message to make America great again, to to put America first. And these are people who are fed up with Washington politics, fed up with the economic stagnation that's affected their lives. They haven't seen wage increases for long periods of time. Uh, And they liked what he had to say about trade, immigration, and foreign wars, uh, and they responded in such huge numbers. He won white working-class voters by 39 points. It's a whopping figure. And he got out white working-class voters at a level not seen since Ronald Reagan's landslides in 1980 and 84. Uh, so he, that, that, that's how he did it. That's his victory. Uh, and he confounded everyone by, uh, and, and especially Republicans, who felt that you could not win the White House again just with white voters. You needed because of the changing demographics in America, that you needed to have uh, immigrants and you needed to have women and you needed to have college-educated voters in big numbers to be able to win the White House, and he proved them wrong. So is this a disaster, a cataclysm for the kind of identity politics coalition which was put together under Obama, which the Clinton campaign was looking to sustain, based on these uh, on these theories that an increasingly multicultural United States uh, would never elect a kind of an, old, an, old, an old-fashioned type of president again, that in a way Trump has harnessed the obverse of that, the mirror image of that, which is white identity politics? I think so. And you heard a lot about that during the campaign. You heard about white privilege. You heard about, well, actually, maybe uh, it's gone so far the other way that um, white people are being disadvantaged by. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's what a lot of his supporters felt was going on. Political correctness had gone so far that they felt they had been disenfranchised by out-of-touch politicians and that they had been left behind. They'd been left behind politically, they'd been left behind economically and left behind in certain pockets of the country, particularly in Appalachia, where they're social conservatives. They felt left behind by the changing uh, gender norms, by the changing uh, identities that were taking place across the United States in the last 10 years. That, those very rapid changes that have taken place from same-sex marriage to uh, the treatment of LGBT community, all of that is, is wrapped up in this feeling that they felt they weren't part of this new America. So what is the sense among, because you've been with Clinton supporters all, all evening as far as I know, this is an absolute cataclysm for the Democratic Party and the ideas which the Democratic Party represents, not just in losing the White House to this extraordinary figure, Donald Trump, but they've also failed to recapture the Senate. So the Republicans are in control of uh, of all arms of government. Well, it's an extraordinary situation that you have one party control of, uh, of government, of Congress and of the White House at a time when the next president is going to be picking potentially up to three new Supreme Court justices, who uh, and, and that would put this president in control of the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court, perhaps for the next half century. It's an extraordinary 
development in American political, public life, social life as well, because of the changes that are likely to come with this new court and the makeup of that court. Uh, and the Democratic Party is really, you know, I was walking around upstairs with some of the supporters. There are people crying, there are people bent over on the floor, uh, sitting down. They're just, they, they're really trying to figure out what went wrong. And if I, when I went up and asked a number of them, uh, what they think went wrong is they, they really are struggling to understand. They're under, struggling to understand the Trump phenomenon uh, that won him all these voters in such large numbers. And I think it shows two Americas that exist, an America that looks looking backwards to a period of American greatness and uh, I, an, an America which looks forward to the 21st century that's inclusive, that's multicultural, uh, that's progressive, um, and, and I think that that divide uh, that we've seen, that chasm that's been created in this election has just widened further and it just reflects the deep polarisation that exists in American life at the moment. But isn't that the challenge for the Democratic Party now? And it was revealed to some extent during the primaries with the kind of the insurgency of Bernie Sanders that there were, there were constituencies who felt that they weren't being uh, represented or respected by the modern Democratic Party. That as it moved more towards areas of cultural identity like the ones you referred there, it was letting go of its traditional base and particularly as reflected in the kind of vote that we've seen today in the Rust Belt states. Well, when I did a lot of travels in this election and I went to places in Ohio, particularly eastern Ohio, just outside Cleveland and along the Ohio River on either side of the Ohio River in Pennsylvania and to the east of the river and west of the river in Ohio, people had, these were union Democrats. These were Democrats who had voted for Ronald Reagan and they felt left behind by the Democratic Party. And I thought the Democrats and some of them uh, would privately admit that they felt that they had someone who was out of touch not just with those people, but many people within the party. Uh, Hillary Clinton uh, was a flawed candidate. And I think that all the controversy around Donald Trump and some of the um, egregious things he said and did over the campaign, I I think papered over a lot of cracks that existed within the Clinton candidacy. She was deeply unpopular. She was not trusted. Remarkably, there were voters who were supporting her, but yet didn't trust her. And she had so much political baggage that had... Uh, that she had carried from being 30 years in in the public eye and in political life. And I think that that weighed very heavily on people. I met a lot of Democrats who were very reluctantly voting for her. And I think when it came to it, I think a lot of those probably just didn't turn out. Uh, And Bernie Sanders during the Democratic primary exposed uh, her flaws uh, to a huge degree. And I don't think that those flaws were addressed during the general election. I think, yes, she got Bernie Sanders on board. Yes, she got the Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's very much in the Sanders wing of the party. Uh, 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 he, and, he and Warren are very popular amongst those uh, grassroots liberals. I, I don't think that they brought those voters in uh, in the numbers that they should have or that they could have with this election. And I think a lot of millennials were switched off uh, by this general election and were switched off by Hillary Clinton. And a lot of the received wisdom about what the Democrats were going to do, a lot of so much received wisdom has been thrown out the window. The Clinton campaign was seen as highly professional, had this very effective ground game, spent vast amounts of money on TV advertising, none of which the Trump campaign seemed to do, and yet it didn't count for much in the end. It didn't, and I, I tell you why I think it didn't count for much, was that when you went to a Trump rally, you felt he was actually engaging with the people. And I'm not just talking about the fact that he would say things that were outrageous. And a lot of supporters at every rally you went to, wherever you were in the country, they'd say to you, you know, you know, I'd ask about, well, what about these outrageous things that he says and shocking things that he says? Are you not shocked by that? And the review of many of them was, well, he talks like we talk. This is how we think. He's saying things that we think. And then in the complete other extreme, you had someone like Hillary Clinton, where everything is poll tested. 
is carefully choreographed and managed from the colour of her outfits to the uh, things she said to the different appearances that she made in different settings um, and in different town halls. And I think you just saw a, a kind of more open and freewheeling uh, candidate in Donald Trump that people liked and people found authentic. Um, and even his supporters disagreed with like, well, what he said, but they liked him. Simon, they, can, they, I ask, can I ask you briefly a question which you're going to have to answer a lot over the last few days, so I won't be asking for a full answer, but ju- just the United States has elected an unprecedented figure to the most powerful office in the land. Somebody who many people have concerns and doubts about his mental stability, somebody who is an extremely dubious past in a range of range of different ways, somebody who's played on some of the most atavistic fears which we've never seen in mainstream presidential level party politics in the United States, somebody who's made extraordinary statements about foreign affairs and the way the United States should conduct them. What have we got to look forward to over the next four years? Well, I think it's important to look at uh, the issues now that, that, that face Trump as president. While his campaign was largely domestic-focused, fo- it touched on a lot of issues international, but, but they were particularly inward-focused in that they affected trade, they affected how people people's working lives, jobs, manufacturing, that kind of thing. And now what we will see is this pivot towards, well, now this, this man is going to be the commander-in-chief. This man has to, he's going to be in, in charge of a sphere of influence over the world. Uh, that really he's unprepared for. And he's clearly unqualified to be commander-in-chief. We saw the exit polls. We saw some of the polling beforehand, which showed that people did not trust him, did not see him as being um, a commander-in-chief when, when he was up against someone like Hillary Clinton, who was much more qualified. So I think that what you're going to see is a lot of pain uh, and a lot of soul-searching within the Republican Party to see if they can perhaps curb him in some way and curb some of his language uh, and really to get him to pull back from some of the rhetoric that he had been engaging in the election campaign. I mean, Donald Trump is, after all, a negotiator. That's how he views himself. His book is The Art of the Deal. So he is someone who can change, and certainly he has changed. He was a Democrat at one point. So I think you'll see uh, this process of trying to soften Trump and trying to a particularly congressional Republican saying you've won the presidency, you need to calm down. Do you think it'll work? Do, actually, do you think it'll work? Uh, I, I think uh, I think he's an, he, he is, uh, his ego uh, has been out of control at particular points in his campaign. So I think that this election victory will probably make him uh, hard to rein in over the next while. But I think that now that he's won it, I think you will see uh, perhaps um, a greater embrace from the Republican establishment. You will see a lot of Senate Republicans, now that they're, they're looking that they have majority control of the Senate, that you'll see them embracing him more and say, right, we have a Republican Congress, we have a Republican White House, let's work together and let's, let's deal in, in measured tones and in measured actions. And I think you're going to see a lot more interaction between the Republican Party and Donald Trump. But I think it is a risk. I think this will certainly go to a head for a period of time. And it does present all sorts of unknowns as to how he will deal with uh, foreign relations, how he will deal with international trade agreements that he's threatened to rip up, and how he will deal with um, the expansionism of Russia and China, for example. So these are all... Uh, big problems and a lot of unknowns. There's there's a hell of a lot of unknowns after this. No one was really anticipating this, and the polls had suggested that it would be it would be tight. But ultimately, Hillary Clinton would win. That hasn't happened, and I think there's going to be a lot of. Uh, a lot of soul-searching by a lot of people tomorrow to figure out what next with, with President Trump. There sure is, and there'll be a lot of questions to ask and we'll come to them, but I know you've got a lot of work to do and you've got to get back to it there. So listen, thanks very much for joining us here this morning, Simon. 
That was Simon Carswell at the Javits Centre. While we were talking, Pennsylvania was called by the Associated Press for Donald Trump, which effectively means there is no way back for Hillary Clinton. I talked to Ruan McCormick, who's waiting for Trump to arrive. If he does arrive today, it's still a little unclear how events will pan out in the next few hours at the Hilton Hotel in Manhattan. Ruan McCormick, I see that you just tweeted uh, that seven hours ago the mood at Trump's party was subdued and resigned and now a jubilant crowd is awaiting the soon-to-be president-elect Trump. That's a pretty remarkable transformation. It certainly is, Hugh. Um, Seven hours ago was when the exit poll results, the initial exit poll results were um, announced on Fox News, which is being broadcast on um, about 40 different screens around this this ballroom and uh, surrounding rooms in the Hilton Midtown in New York where uh, Donald Trump was holding his, uh, his election night party. And when that, the results of that exit poll were initially released, it looked pretty bad for Donald Trump. It showed that a majority of Americans um, said that they uh, felt that Donald Trump was not sufficiently experienced, that uh, he didn't have the temperament to be president. Um, it was clear that first-time voters were breaking for Hillary Clinton. It was clear that uh, the Democrats had succeeded in bringing out a really substantial um, proportion of the Hispanic community, which was going to favor her in places like Florida, uh, Nevada, and elsewhere, it was assumed. So at that time, walking around the hall, it was pretty subdued. Um, you know, people were, a lot of people were resigned. There was a general sense, um, you know, that this was this was um, moving away from Donald Trump. In fact, around that time, Kellyanne Conway, who was Donald Trump's campaign director, um, appeared on, on television and criticised a lot of senior Republicans for not having given enough support to the candidate. So that was the general mood. There was a sense that maybe they were trying to prepare the ground for a defeat. Um, the mood now is dramatically different. Um, we just learned that Pennsylvania is being called for Donald Trump. And that, of course, had been very much in the blue column in the opinion polls leading up to the uh, up to election day. Um, and so he's within touching distance now. He needs just a handful more to get to the 270, and Hillary Clinton realistically doesn't have any, any route of her own to the 270. So we're expecting a declaration any minute now, and Donald Trump, apparently he's moved from Trump Tower to his apartment where he's been joined by his wife, Melania. They're going to come here a little later on, and um, we were told he prepared two speeches um, for both eventualities. Uh, and we're also being told by some people working from here that he's going to try to strike a conciliatory note, that he's going to acknowledge that you know, half the country, possibly a majority of the country, a majority of the popular vote, did not support him. Um, but uh, that's going to take place sometime, I'd say, in the next hour. Now, now I mean, this is, not to put too fine a point, that this, I think this is one of the most surprising and shocking, startling events in the political history of the United States. Is that over saying it? I don't think so. Um, I think it's stunning. Um, it appends a great deal of our assumptions about American politics, about American society. Um, you know, a lot of the things that politicians and political consultants and commentators took for granted about how you win American elections, which is that you assemble uh, a diverse coalition, um, very much uh, including uh, minorities, uh, women, um, that this was the only route to securing the presidency, was the only route to um, achieving 270 electoral votes in a country that's growing more diverse uh, with every year. I mean, when the 
Republicans lost um, in 2012. They carried out this review where this was exactly the point they made. They felt that the Republican Party was um, was falling behind because it was failing to speak to minorities, it was failing to speak to women, failing to speak to young people. What Donald Trump has done is he has won and won, you know, very convincingly um, by ignoring all of that conventional wisdom and appealing very much to to white voters, and in, in particular to white working-class uh, voters uh, who feel disaffected, who feel disenfranchised, who feel cut off um, from you know, the direction that American U.S. society is traveling in. Uh, it'll take a long time to, suggest, to, to digest this, to assess the full implications, but clearly um, you know, the implications are, are huge, um, and it's going to cause all of us, I think, to reassess a great deal of what we assumed to be true about the United States. And to what extent is it is it the case that I was looking at a piece just half an hour ago on, on thehill.com, which is a Washington Insider's political website, saying really that the the people on Trump's team, as much as the you know the the, the, the analysts outside and the political pundits and the people in the Democratic Party None of them necessarily believed this stuff about that you were going to get out the Rust Belt vote or that, you know, white working class voters were going to turn out in numbers that hadn't been seen for a generation. They, and all this stuff over the last few days about Trump rushing around from one place to another. People were laughing at him for showing up so much in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and places like that. He was right and everybody else was wrong. It certainly seems that way. I mean, it is possible that everybody else was right in the sense that he, he, he the move into places like Michigan and Minnesota was essentially driven by uh, a sense of desperation once he saw places like Nevada, um, you know, fall quite firmly into the blue column after early voting. It's possible that that was true. Um, but of course, you know, now it looks very much like uh, they had a sense that something was stirring in places like Michigan and Minnesota and Pennsylvania. Um, and that, they, that you know, victories in those states, which again were you know consistently in the blue column uh, over last over the previous couple of weeks and months, and um, that they sensed that that they could make headway there and, and spring a few surprises, and that's that's exactly uh, what has happened. The assumption was that it was driven purely out of des- by desperation that that move in the last couple of days. Uh, in other words, that Donald Trump was seeing his path to 270. Um, electoral votes contract day by day, and so he had to look to this famous um, blue firewall of Hillary Clinton's in the upper Midwest. Um, but it was, you know, it's clear now, I suppose, that it was right territory, and that you know these states do have big uh, white working class populations. You know, they have they they, they belong in, in that Rust Belt we've heard so much about. Um, I, I get no, se- I got no sense earlier on in the evening that. Uh, that the Trump campaign, at least the, the campaign staff who are here, that they had uh, an inkling of what was to come. I mean, I think that they believed the exit poll, and based on the exit poll, it was looking pretty pretty grim for, for Donald Trump earlier on. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, if they've been you know, stunned as much as everybody else by um, the proportion of these white voters they have managed to persuade to come out to vote for Donald Trump. It, it's only it's, it's less than a day ago that I was listening to uh, podcasts from well-respected American journalists falling around laughing at the prospect of Trump picking his cabinet with Rudy Giuliani as Attorney General and Newt Gingrich as Secretary of State. Uh, the, I'm sure uh, in Trump Tower they're saying who's laughing now. But what what the kind of people you've been talking to this evening and indeed over the past couple of weeks? What are their expectations for a Trump presidency now that it's going to happen? 
Well, it's interesting. I've been traveling around the U.S. for almost a month now, and um, a lot of people saw it as a, a strength of Trump's, a virtue of his candidacy, that he was unpredictable, that they couldn't say exactly what he would do or you know, what his government would look like or you know, quite how he would behave as president. People often said, well, we know what we'll get with Hillary Clinton, and so it's try- time to try something new. And yes, you know, we're not quite sure what a president Trump will look like. Um, you often heard that from evangelicals and people who were uh, you know, not all that pleased with the fact that Donald Trump for much of his life has been a Democrat and quite a liberal on, on social questions. Um, but you know, a lot of people saw this as a virtue. Um, now, of course, you know, it, this takes on a much more urgent uh, hue. You know, we, we really have little idea about who will end up in in his cabinet. Um, we're not sure which of his policies will remain. He had repudiated some distance to himself from others in the course of the, uh, the latter stages of the campaign. Um, so really, we're in the dark. Um, and it's going to take a long time, um, you know, more than the couple of weeks we have between now and Inauguration Day in late January, for the dust to settle and to really get a sense of what a Trump presidency will actually look like. And well, for those of us looking at it from outside, just a couple of a couple of things. One is the kind of the, the the clear evidence that the man really doesn't have a very long attention span, and that he's easily emotionally aroused in the worst possible way and lashes out. I mean, the the, the president of the United States is a man who's got who had his Twitter account taken off him by his own staff two weeks ago, and one of his closest advisors, Steve Bannon, uh, is is uh, runs an alt right website, which really you know verges towards something that that in other countries would be called uh, would be called fascism mm. it's a prospect that will terrify a, a, a lot of Americans um, you know it, he's a very unpredictable um, character I was going to call him a politician but of course he's not a he's not a politician remember as well that he's he's going to have uh, a really accommodating political system around him in Washington. For the first time since 1928, it looks like this, a single party will control the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives. Or at least I think it's, it's the first time the Republican Party has done it. I think the Democrats did it, but it's oh, the first time the Republicans have, I think. Excuse me, the first time the Republicans mm, have done mm. it since 1928. Um, and this will make life a lot easier for Donald Trump. Um, you know, his, his room for manoeuvre is dramatically expanded compared to the, pres- the, the last six years of, of President Obama's uh, presidency, where he's been dealing with a, a largely obstructionist um, uh, Senate and House of, uh, of, of Representatives. And, you know, so there's a decision, for example, coming up very soon on a new Supreme Court judge to replace um, Antonin Scalia, who died uh, last year. That vacancy has been there for nine months. The Republicans have refused to cooperate with um, President Obama's um, attempt to nominate uh, quite a moderate jurist, that's going to be one of the first decisions that President Trump has to make, and he's going to face relatively little opposition. You know, so some, some, um, some liberals this evening are clutching at straws and saying, well, this could only be for four years, but there's a great deal that a president of the United States can, can do in four years and can take a lot of decisions that can certainly outlive, outlive a single term. Uh, this will all become available in the weeks and months ahead. Ruan McCormick, thanks very much for joining us.
And that's it for this special podcast from the Irish Times. Our business podcast later in the day will be looking at the financial ramifications of the events which have occurred over the last few hours. And just to say you can continue to follow our coverage of the US presidential election and its fallout on irishtimes.com throughout the day. Thanks to our producer Declan Conlon. Remember you can email me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or find me on Twitter at hlinehan. Until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 